You're listening to Spirited Spirits, a spooky-centric podcast where we enjoy spirit while we talk about spirits. I'm Drew. And I'm Steph. Thanks for joining us. Tonight, we're talking about one of the most gruesome unsolved murders in American history, the Velisca Axe Murders. And tonight, we are drinking a cocktail that we are dubbing the Axe Murderer. Now, Steph kind of played around with this one. (laughs) So it's made with bourbon, pomegranate juice, Mm -hmm. lemon juice, raspberry liqueur, and bitters. Yes. Oh, and simple syrup. And a little bit of simple syrup. Yeah, it kind of depends on how sweet you like it. We were just trying to use some stuff we already had here at the bar. (laughs) Right. So, um, yeah, where can they find the recipe? They can find it on Instagram Mm -hmm. at spirited underscore spirits underscore podcast. Right. That's where we posted the recipe. Okay. And before we begin, I do want to give a warning about the graphic nature of the content that we will be discussing in tonight's podcast episode. We will be discussing in gory detail the crime scene and what happened to the victims, which includes children who died in a horrific, horrific way. So if you don't want to hear about this, you know, if this is just not the story for you, please feel free to skip this episode. So now, now's the time. Go ahead, click off. Or if you're still with us, great. (laughs) So now that's out of the way. It has been 110 years since the town of Villisca, Iowa, was rocked by the horrific discovery of an entire family and two friends slaughtered in the white three-bedroom farmhouse located at 508 East 2nd Street. On the morning of June 10, 1912, Mary Peckham was out doing chores when she realized her neighbors, the Moors, did not appear to be awake yet which was very unusual given their farm needed to be tended to. By 7 a.m., no one in the Moore family had come out of the house to let the chickens out or to milk the cows. So Mary, being a good neighbor, went over to the Moore home and knocked on the door. When no one responded, she tried opening the door, but it was locked. Now, this was very unusual for that time period. People used to leave their doors unlocked all the time, and friends and neighbors will often, like, walk in and, and just, you know, hey, how's it going? You know, show up in your in your parlor, in no your kitchen. No sense of privacy. No, not really. <laughs> but, you know, that's just how it was then. And so Mary grew very concerned. First, she let the chickens out for her neighbors, which was very nice. And then she called Josiah Moore's brother, Ross, to let him know that she couldn't get in touch with anyone in the home. Okay. So who, so who was, like, the owner of the home? So it was Josiah B. Moore, who went by Joe or J.B., and his wife, Sarah. They lived there with their four children, Herman, age 11, Catherine, or I've also heard her referred to as Mary Catherine, age 10, Boyd, age 7, and Paul, age 5. So Josiah's brother, Ross, was called by the neighbor Mary, like I said. He arrived and began knocking on the doors and shouting for his brother. He tried looking in the windows, but he realized the curtains were drawn, closed, so he couldn't see inside, which again was unusual. Finally, he decided to use a spare key to access his brother's home. Now, once inside, Ross could tell immediately something was wrong. He walked in. First, there's like a parlor area, which would be like our living room, like, you know, walking in. And then there was a a bedroom, like a spare guest bedroom on the first floor. 
he walked in there and he found two small bodies lying in bed covered and there was a dark liquid appeared to be blood he did not go in any further instead he stepped out onto the porch and he told mary to call city marshal hank horton okay so first of all Good on him for not going any farther. Yeah. Well, I don't after, think he could have handled, I mean. Right. But also, yes, I don't think he could handle it. He probably also, sensed something was really wrong. But also in every single, like, horror movie or whatever we watch, they're always like, I'm going to go in and, or even like on Dateline, they're like, I went inside and like messed with the body and did this and stuff. And, looking and like messed the crime scene Stepping in the up. blood. And yeah, stepping in the blood. I touched all the doorknobs and then like well, hold on. Know, all that stuff. Hold, so. Just wait. Wait for it. Hold on. Okay. So when Hank Horton arrived, again, he's the city marshal. He um, found the home dark. Like I said, all the curtains had been drawn except two windows that didn't actually have curtains. So instead they were covered in clothing, which was interesting. Okay. Additionally, all the mirrors in the home had been covered by linens. Okay. In the kitchen, Hank found an uneaten plate of food next to a bowl of bloody water. That's what so, our cocktail kind of looks like today. Yeah. <laughs> so already, I'm, it's really odd. Mm-hmm. Like the mirrors are all... Right. So, so first thing I'm going to ask you to think about that later. But okay. Let me tell the whole story. Oh, hold on. I want. I just want to like ask my thought process as okay. we go through. My first thought process because I don't know. I'm like, oh, it's a vampire <laughs> because like they covered the mirrors. He wouldn't be able like, to see himself in the mirror anyway if it was a vampire. That's true. But um, <laughs> but then I think I was like, okay, like logically, and it was like the, I guess the shame of seeing like your reflection after completing a murder like that mm-hmm. and that's why you might want to cover so let's delve into that in a bit i know but i'm saying like you know more about this than i do and uh-huh. so i'm just like picking apart this as we go along okay so, i want you to keep that in the back of your mind there's a lot of things there's a lot of speculation because this is an unsolved <laughs> mystery like this right. is an unsolved murder right murders so just keep those things in mind at the end when we kind of talk about debrief okay. everything I've said. Okay. okay. So in the kitchen, like I said, they found this uneaten plate of food next to a, a bowl of bloody water. Now, upon entering the first floor guest bedroom, Hank found the bodies of the two young girls who would later be identified as Lena or Lena Stillinger, age 12, and her sister Ina, age 8. Lena's body was in a weird position. Her body was hanging out of the bed. Her underwear had been removed Mm. and was thrown under the bed. There was a blood spot on her thigh, which may have been made by the killer pulling her down the bed. Just speculation. Um, Ina's body, which was on the right-hand side of the bed, it was kind of near the wall. Um, But she was kind of hanging off the bed a little bit, too. Her butt was off the bed a little bit more her backside and detectives speculated this was done on purpose by the killer as some type of sexual gratification but doctors examined the girls and they claimed that they were not sexually assaulted all right i wonder how at that time how they determined that right right because not going into any detail right i'm just i'm just wondering how they would have determined that at like you know at that time frame maybe some type of well i don't want to go in because just talking to this kind of stuff i know 
irks me, but I wonder if there's damage. That's, they that's, would look for damage. That's what I'm wondering. Okay. So, um, all the victims had been struck multiple times in the face and head, about the head, with the blunt end of an axe while they slept. Now, I've heard conflicting statements as to whether it was Josiah or Sarah who had been struck the most. And by the sharp end. So, all of them were struck by the blunt end. But I've seen one report where someone said Josiah was hit the most, and that included the sharp end of the axe. Like, there were marks that indicated it was the sharp end. But then another source said that the grand jury testimony said it was actually Sarah who had those marks. So you'll soon discover this whole investigation, it, there's a lot of conflicting, there's information that just... A lot of it is testimonial from the police. There wasn't a whole lot of um, documented evidence, and it feels like the investigation was a bit botched. So it was was it all like more like firsthand accounts? Like yes, it's all firsthand accounts. Okay, so that that that's number one. So you're gonna hear conflicting <laughs> statements right. sometimes. Also, so, depending on time frame, the ability to recall information right like decreases. But hold time. on, it gets worse. No, of course. Okay. Of course it does. So, like I said, it feels a little botched. And I'll go into that in a bit, but I think that the city marshal and the local law enforcement were just not equipped to handle something like this. I mean, this kind of crime, this this murder, um, I mean, they were used to petty thefts and locking up the town drunk who was getting too rowdy, you right. know? Um, so they had never experienced anything quite like this before. So I kind of understand why this would have thrown them off and they didn't do more um right the trauma of, of seeing all that yeah in yeah. fact there was someone who stated when they had gone in to see the bodies they they said to someone else don't go in there boys if you um was it don't don't go in there boys you'll 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 regret it for the rest of your life after seeing mm. what they saw okay so there was evidence that the killer actually went to the parents first so he took them out first he then walked around and killed all the children before then returning to josiah and sarah's bedroom and he hit them several more times they believe the killer hit them at least 20 or 30 times there was blood mm. brain tissue and skull fragments all over the bed and headboard there were also axe marks in the ceiling in the parents and well, so it's the ceilings in the bedroom were kind of like lower, uh, I guess, because they were kind of vaulted or something. So there, you can see the axe marks in the ceiling in the parents' and the children's bedrooms on the second floor. And you could see where he li had lifted the weapon repeatedly above his head in kind of a frenzied manner. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So I'm on my 20 or 30 times frenzied manner. You're thinking a crime of passion, but I'm thinking I'm thinking a crime of some like yeah passion or somebody that knew this family. But wait, okay. okay. The murder weapon was found in the guest bedroom where Lena, Lena, and Ina were. It appeared the killer had tried to wipe off the axe before lying it against a wall, but it still had some blood on it. Oh, and the axe actually belonged to the Moore family, okay. so he used their own axe against them. And next to the axe was a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a dish towel. A two-pound slab of I, bacon 
wrapped in a dish towel. I don't know what to do with that. Okay, so let me let me back up a <laughs> Cause bit. Because my on. thought process is, it's like, is that some type of atonement? Like, I killed this family, here's this pound of bacon? Like... No, because the there was an additional two pounds found in the freezer, meaning it was the family's bacon that he pulled out of the freezer. He pulled out two pounds of it, and then there was additional bacon in the freezer that he didn't pull out. So, like, was he grabbing the bacon to go, and then he got distracted? I don't know. I don't know. As morbid, as morbid as it sounds, I guess, after all that work, you might get hungry. Like, Well, but then there was the uneaten food in the kitchen. So, okay. So, let me back up a bit. Okay. Once City Marshal Hank Horton did an initial walkthrough of the crime scene, he left to go find the doctor. Along the way, he mentioned that there had been a murder at the Moore's home. So word, of course, spread like wildfire. People began showing up at the farmhouse and walking through the crime scene. Oh, Jesus. is what I'm talking about when I say it's botched. At least 100 people entered the home before the National Guard in Villisca finally arrived to cordon off the home. One man allegedly took a skull fragment and put it on display in his pool hall, claiming it was a piece of Joe's, Joe Moore's head. Okay. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I mean, how how can you not secure a crime scene that? I mean, that's a lot of people. Again, they, they're people? they're ill-equipped. They're ill-equipped. They don't. I don't think. Put a rope around the house or something. I mean, like just like put "Do not enter" a sign that says "Do" and like one guy standing out there. I feel like well, that's enough to say. Hey, here's one source I saw said that he did ask a guy to kind of like. Don't let anybody in. Right. And that guy totally fucked up and just was like, come on in. Like, let all these people in. Did he charge tickets? Like, I don't, he'd be like, hey, I don't know. Can see this dead family? Like, I don't know. What the fuck, man? So the marshal <laughs> returns um, with two doctors who then begin examining the victims. But the coroner didn't arrive until much later. So the fact that there were so many people who traipsed through the crime scene before it was even secure means evidence was likely destroyed. But to make matters worse, I understand that one person tried to take photos of the scene, not for police purposes, but just for like a morbid fascination, and Josiah's brother Ross stopped him, allegedly smashing the camera. Now, I understand his frustration, but had those been allowed to be taken, the photos been allowed to be taken, we could have had photographic documentation of the murders, like we have with, like, say, the Lizzie Borden case, right? Well, right. it was Andrew Borden, her father, and Abby, her mom. But you see those black and white photos of her of Lizzie's father, Andrew, slumped down on the couch, right? You've seen those. But I think at the time, you know, Josiah's brother Ross isn't thinking. I know he's oh, traumatized. Let me, let me take. Let me make sure this guy takes pictures so we have evidence. I know because. But I mean, someone on think, the police force you would should think, have. You would think that he, I would think that Ross, like, oh, the police will take care of it. They'll take pictures. Right, right. Instead of this guy. Is this, like, Jamoke is going to, like, just take pictures of my dead family and put them on his wall? I mean. I get also, it. I get it. I get also, it. Also, this, this is not a, a, a thing that is, as we've come to, I'm going to just go on a, so, like a soapbox moment here. Oh, here we go. This is not, a <laughs> like, a thing that has gone away. Because, like, nowadays. Mm-hmm. If, like, something terrible happens out in the world, what are people's first thing to do instead of calling 911? They, they sit there and document it with their phones, usually. Yes. Yeah. Which is also... Bystander. It, but it's a good thing. It it, 
bystander effect. Mm -hmm. But it's a good thing and a bad thing. Like, there's people that are like, I'm going to videotape this and put it up on, like, TikTok and get Mm -hmm. views. Mm -hmm. There's some people like, I'm going to videotape this to have this so, like, you know, hey, like, if the guy that's getting beat by somebody wants to have documentation, I've got it. Right. But no one's calling the police. Or you have someone that needs to call the police. So, like... It, it's it's the same situation. There's a through line of like just like the public and how we react towards things. Side note: This is just a very strange side note, but you know I've done training for like CPR, AED, and since I am tra- trained and certified, I'm one of the people that actually has to a jump in and start doing the like um, chest compressions and breathing and stuff. But I have to point to someone and say, "You call nine one one." Because people won't think to do it. We that is right. one thing that I was taught in that training. Because right. people get shocked or like you know. Right. They they get the, like yeah. It's like a deer in headlights. They don't know what to do. Okay. So all we have of the Velisca axe murders are written testimonies of the investigators. There's no other evidence that was kept. No blood samples. Of course, DNA wasn't really a thing then. Um, but they didn't even think to keep like the bloody sheets. Like all so. One thing I had read is, like, once they had removed the bodies and um, gone through the process of burying them, they had to go clean the home, and all of that evidence was destroyed. It was not kept. So, um, according... At the time, they didn't have they didn't have DNA stuff, so I don't know how much I know, but, they would have Well, I know, but, that? like, fingerprints and stuff, they still kind of had. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, okay, so according to investigators, they found two kerosene lamps with the chimneys removed and the wicks turned all the way down, so like the lowest level, um, in both Josiah and Sarah's bedroom as well as the guest bedroom. They believed the killer used these lamps to light his way throughout the dark home. That's that's creepy. They also (laughs) found two finished cigarette butts in the attic which led some to believe the murderer could have hid there until the family now in return till the family returned home. Um, and so with that in mind, let me just back up even further and explain where the family was the night before. So on Sunday, June 9th, the Moore family attended a children's program. This was an annual children's program at their local Presbyterian church. The event ended at 9:30 PM. Which, to me, seems really late for a children's program to end. I mean, these are young kids, and they're they're used to having to wake up at the ass crack of dawn to do farm chores. Hey, I mean, we're parents. We know that it does not matter what time we put our kid to bed. He is waking up at the ass crack of dawn. Well, this is so, true. I mean, it, You're right. They, they could have been like, this event ends at 1030, and we're going to get home at 1130 and put... The kids and our to kids bed, still awake, and they're six. still gonna get up at five thirty and be like, "Let's go milk the cows, Grandpa." Okay. Like, well, anyway, <laughs> so Lena and Ina Stillinger were supposed to actually stay the night at their grandparents' house. Oh, that sucks. Uh, yeah, it gets worse. But they were too afraid to walk alone in the dark. See, the town street lamps had actually been turned off because of a dispute with the electric company. That's oddly convenient. Well, that's apparently this happened um Catherine Mary Catherine the the daughter of the Moore family invited her two friends to stay the night at her house instead 
and jo- I guess they lived closer to the church. Josiah called Lena and Ina's parents to ask permission, but their parents were apparently out for the night. So the older sister picked up and said, yeah, I think that'll be fine. Um, you know, she le- she would let her parents know that, you know, when they returned home that the, the two younger daughters were going to be staying the night at the Moore residence. So investigators believe the family walked home together, arriving at around 10 p.m., and they were likely murdered between midnight and 5 a.m. And I've seen a reference to, with paranormal stuff that I'll talk about later, that they think they were actually murdered at 12.45 a.m. Okay. Okay. So, I, because I just don't see them being murdered closer to 5 a.m. because the neighbor, Mary was actually up at five and doing her chores, doing laundry and stuff. And that's when she started to kind of pay attention to the fact that the Moors weren't coming out of the home. So she would have seen a man leaving or someone, whoever the killer is, leaving the home if she, you know, if they were still there at 5 a.m. So my my thought is also that whoever did this knew that they were out of the house at that time. Because, okay, they found two cigarette butts in the, in the attic. Let's say this guy... Because, again, no locked doors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this guy, or or woman, who, who knows? Person, this person. person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, knew that they were going to be out of the house during this children's play or whatever. Had plenty of opportunity to go up and sit in the attic and, and, just, and just sit and waiting. Yeah, and I should explain. Because I kind of looked at, like, the, the home and I, I watched a few things about it. And the attic, you would think, would be actually above their heads, like above the bedrooms. It's not. It's like a, it almost reminds me of um, modern day homes where you have like a second floor and you have like the bedrooms, but then there's like this spare room that's almost like a utility room. And some people make it into like a playroom for their kids or an office space. Okay. It's kind of like that. It's off of the second floor. It's not fully a. That's odd. It's like a storage space. But that's where they found the two cigarette butts. Now, this part is really sad. So since Lena and Ina had stayed the night at the Moore's home, their mother tried to call them the next morning. Now, back then, there were phone operators who would connect your call. Apparently, when she asked one of the phone operators to call the Moore's, the operator said, oh, you aren't going to reach them. Everyone in that home is dead. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Gut wrenching. Like, Can you imagine how, being that mom? Like I, how? How would? Why would the the call transfer like the person the operator? Why would she even say it like that? She had no class, I guess. I, I don't mean, know, oh, but, you're not going to reach them. But, Sorry, they're dead. Well, they're as dead as a fucking doornail. Because <laughs> I think, and I think that that's you know, phone operators heard a lot of shit back then. But and I guess. I don't think she, but I don't think she necessarily realized it was the mom of those daughters. You know, that information had gotten out. And I think also, but still, gossipy behavior. It was very, I mean, it still is nowadays, but like, but you don't have phone operators like listening in and right. But if they heard that stuff, they were telling people. Mm -hmm. So, so as I said earlier, two doctors came to the crime scene. One of the weird things they discovered was that no one in the family woke up during the murders. So how does someone kill eight people and not a single person wakes up from the noise? Now, 
maybe it's because I'm a light sleeper, <laughs> but if you were being axed in the face, I feel like I would wake up. I feel like I would definitely wake up and I be think, like, ah. Right. Yeah. I think that's that. That makes sense. Um, I mean, were they drugged? Okay. So that's the doctors wondered if the family had been drugged. But do you think they did a drug test on them? Did they have the? Did they have the ability? See, to I don't do know. I don't know. I I could not find anything. I, there was no documentation to say that they did any type of results to see if the family had been drugged. I I. That would have been good there to is know, right? Like, there, there's so many things about this that are just so many questions. Right. And then, as you indicated earlier, like a single blow to the head would be sufficient to kill each victim. So, yet the murderer hits them multiple times, which you would think is like a crime of passion or some type of anger um, associated. And also, also, that would be a lot of sound. Especially, also, you mentioned earlier that at one point he's scraping the ceiling. Yeah. I feel like even that would be making a lot of noise, right. too. Like, right. if if you're hearing somebody get, like, thudded... This is graphic. This is a graphic episode. Yeah, But, like, if you're hearing somebody get, like, thudded in the face with an axe, you're, you're going to hear I mean, their that. skull is getting smashed in. Yeah, but then also you're going to I can only imagine what sounds that makes. I don't yeah. ever want to know. You're also going to be hearing the axe scrape the ceiling, too. Yeah. Which would make an entirely different register of sound. Right. So why wouldn't... Yeah, I think I think there has to be something else here. Yeah, like them being drugged. I th- I'm wondering if like even what if, if they, hold on hold on. Here's another theory I'm thinking. What if some they invited somebody back from the Presbyterian Church who had mm. like drugs on like a drug like a draft or whatever on them, mm. and were like, oh, we're gonna have like our nightly tea or whatever. But that, there wasn't. I don't think there was evidence of nightly tea. There right. was just that uneaten plate of food. But again, you know, uh, it was kind of a botched investigation. So there may, may maybe right. there were glasses he could, he in the could sink, have and the nobody. Tea. Yeah, he could have cleaned the tea like or cups or whatever. And yeah, I don't no know. No one would have been wiser. But then also, what was with the bacon? Now, some have speculated the killer could have masturbated with it. Wait, what? So if if he posed Lena and Ina in a position that was for sexual gratification. He's just, fucking, I, he's just fucking a pound of bacon? Sorry, that's that's. But again, crass. okay, but I mean, but, but, so, I mean, but that's, that's I, just such an odd, like, thought process. So then I said, well, did they find semen on the piece of meat, on, you know, on the bacon would or the cloth? Able, would they even be able to identify I semen? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, like, these are things that I, I don't know. Maybe because I don't. And I live, we live in a very different time, so it's hard. We can't even begin to fully process... We can't we can't look back fully and judge them for everything Man, because I'm gonna, it's a I'm different gonna, time frame. I'm gonna need a moment with the whole idea of like the thought process of somebody axing a whole family and then masturbating with bacon. Like that's that's a whole other but if like, but we've watched enough shows. To <laughs> we've watched process. enough shows to know that some of these killers get sexual gratification right. from murdering people. Yes. No, that's that is completely and utterly true. I just we watched Mindhunter and we geez, that's love a cool, that that's show. That's a great show. Shout out to that show if you yes. haven't watched it. Watch it. Great Net- show. Netflix. They only have two seasons. Yeah. With, ended on a cliffhanger and it's still not finished. It's so a great it's, show. and it's never going to be finished for the director. So we're well, just going to be waiting forever until they're on hold. But anyway, he has said I'm not probably going to finish. That sucks. <laughs> so, okay. That sucks. 
Hey, I'm getting low on my drink. I'm also, and I'm stressed from this case. Okay, so <laughs> we're gonna, so we'll pause here. So, um, let's take a break from the topic at hand while you're making our drinks, because then I'm gonna talk about some of the suspects, um, and I want to get your thoughts on that, babe. But while you're making your drink, you always ask me to pray and I'm asking. I want to, yeah, I want to ask you. Okay, so if you were a murderer, <laughs> <laughs> if you were, if you were a killer, I, 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 I already hate this question. What would be your weapon of choice? <laughs> I hate. I'm this here one. talking to the microphone. <laughs> what do you mean? This? Uh, would you choose an axe? You're kind of like sometimes you're like a no, lumberjack, so maybe you'd like. I I I would not choose an axe because I would like point out that I'm also very squeamish when it comes to that kind of stuff, like not in like movies and like video you know in video fake. games because I know it's fake. Right. But like if I like saw somebody get like a a wound, like, I know. A, like a significant I'm wound, I probably would pass out from like just being a complete like yeah like pansy so well my I sister don't, used to get injured a lot and i freaked out because i can't i could never be a nurse or a doctor so i also because i'm a therapist i could never like or was a therapist i could never think about murdering anybody stephanie so i don't know what kind of weapon i would use probably you know what i would just murder you with love okay stop it <laughs> so, are you making two of those or one two okay are you making enough yeah okay because are you following the recipe? I don't know what the recipe is. Uh, I gave you the recipe. It's, what on, the, you... it's on the back. Oh, of it's yours. on the back of mine. My... <laughs> Here. So, I'm just making up as we go. No, you got to follow the recipe. That's the whole point. Okay. Okay. Um. Okay. So what? So. I'm trying to think of another good question to yeah, ask. Yeah, that was you. a terrible question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what? What would you use if you were a murderer? Well, okay. So I'm going to talk about it like a little bit later on, but the. This, I mean, this person used their axe. So he came to their home without a weapon. Which makes me think that he was invited there. Oh. That's why I'm saying. You know, and it's funny that I don't think that's ever been discussed, Andrew. So because if think, you are like the only person that's ever brought that forward. Um, Sherlock, y'all. Yeah, he's wearing a Sherlock shirt tonight, too. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> you are. Yeah, you are. Because I'm, I'm like. That's why I'm thinking that he was invited there. I am ninety percent positive. In all my research, I did not see anyone suggest that he that there was someone who was invited back to the home. That's what I'm thinking. That he those was, are just a few drops. You don't have to measure them out. But that's why I think that he was actually invited. Invited there because my thought process is fascinating. He had the ability to drug them, mm-hmm. which I think he already had. He or she already had that. And then why would he use their axe? It's either that or he was hiding and. But I, I don't, if it was a room off of the side, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. I think, I think it's more of he was invited back. They had some type of like food item or drink or whatever. And then he drugged he or, them, she. He or she drugged <laughs> them all and then started the act. And so that's, that's my official theory as of right now. Okay. Interesting. And I'm going to go shake this in another yeah. location. So that's not really loud in the well, mic. Well, you can you can shake it, and I can just like well cover the microphone a little bit or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's 
Or I can cut this part out. We're going to cut this part out and be back in a minute. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about some of the potential suspects. One of the most compelling suspects was Reverend George Kelly. He was a, tra a traveling preacher who had attended the children's program at the Presbyterian Church. Now, he was staying with a local family who had slept outside in a tent. I guess they weren't feeling good. And so they slept out in a tent, which meant that he kind of had the run of their house. Like he was staying in their home while they slept outside in a tent. So he could have very well slipped out of the home and they would have never known. Or, like you have posited, he could have been invited back to the Moore's home and then did what he did. But Reverend Kelly was said to be a sexual deviant. Well, here we go. <laughs> he was known I mean... to peek in windows and, and spy on people. So if Lena was sexually assaulted, like if they just totally botched that part of the investigation and said she hadn't been, um, he could have been the culprit. Having seen her at the event and then following the family home or being invited back, suspiciously, he left the next day by train and a couple claimed that he mentioned the murders to them before it was even widely known. He also became obsessed with the murder, returning to Villisca to see the crime scene. He actually pretended to be a member of the Scotland Yard to gain access to the home. So it's almost oh, like... Oh, wait, case solved if he, hold on, this point. Hold on. So if he had done it, it was like him reliving, right? Right. That's what they do. They like to go back to the scene of the crime. Now, in 1917, he was arrested. He was interrogated by police. And he confessed to the crime saying God told him to slay them. He actually quoted a verse from the Old Testament. It's Ezekiel 9.6. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and young children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Okay. That's it. Case solved. <laughs> like, this is the guy. I mean, you look at this rundown of what you just talked about. He was a sexual deviant. He was looking in on people's, like, you know windows and stuff like that so they were allegedly sexually assaulted um he talked about the murders before they were widely known he he actually left on a train the day after mm -hmm. then he returned to the scene of the crime to obviously relive it allegedly i guess i should say mm -hmm. um and then he confesses to the crime spouting off some old testament bullshit about like to justify his murder okay so like that that's the guy that's the guy but he ended up recanting his confession claiming he was beaten by the cops he was tried twice for the murders now during the first trial it ended it actually ended in a hung jury only one juror wanted to convict him the second trial ended in the acquittal so that being said, the next suspect was one of the most prominent men in town, Frank Jones. Now, Frank was an Iowa senator and a well-known businessman. Joe Moore had previously worked for Frank, but he decided to go off on his own, start his own business, and he took the biggest account with him, the John Deere account. You know John Deere? That mm -hmm. little, like, tractor company? That little tractor company. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. not very well-known nowadays. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> 
So the townsfolk had said that there was a rift between their friendship. So they would sooner cross the street than talk to one another. So that's how bad it had gotten. There was, it's just bad blood, right? Okay. So rumor also spread that Joe was having an affair with Donna Jones, who is Frank's daughter-in-law. Now, I mentioned the phone operators earlier. Well, they claim that Donna, who is married to Frank's son, Albert, often received calls from men in town. And Joe Moore was one of those men. People speculated that Frank could have hired a hitman to take out Joe and his family. In fact, one private detective by the name of Wilkinson was convinced that Frank was involved and had hired William Mansfield, a known cocaine addict, to kill the Moore family. Now, Mansfield was actually the prime suspect in the 1914 axe murder of his wife and his family, but Mansfield had an alibi for the Velisca murders. He was actually working in Illinois at the time of the Moore murders. So, what do you think about that? I, that sounds, I still think it's the dude, Reverend, Reverend George Kelly. Kelly. I, okay. I still think it's him. Okay. So there were other named suspects, but none really panned out. And to me, actually, one of the most compelling theories at the, is that this wasn't someone in town. This wasn't someone that was known. Could it have been an unknown serial killer who used the rail system the trains to get to place to place and find and kill his victims now i'm not going to go too much into it in this episode because i haven't read the books that kind of posit this theory but i plan to one of the books is called murdered in their beds by troy taylor and the author was actually interviewed by um uh, Astonishing Legends that I listened to as a podcast. Um, and then another book that I heard about from Morbid, the Girls at Morbid um, podcast, The Man from the Train Discovering America's Most Elusive Serial Killer by Bill James. Essentially, both of those authors suggest that a serial axe murderer would hop on trains and find families who live near the tracks. And there were several axe murders through, throughout the Midwest during that time frame. It was like 1911, 1912. And there's several similarities between the crime scenes at these various axe murders. All had the curtains drawn, doors locked, bloody water and uneaten food were found, bodies were covered, the blunt end of the axe was used to kill people in their sleep. And and I didn't mention this earlier, but nothing had been taken from the Velisca home. Nothing was taken from these homes. So it wasn't a robbery. This was these were murders. So what do you think about that? Could it have been an unknown serial killer who used the trains? And I'm going to read the books, and maybe in a future podcast, I, we can kind of break down that theory a little bit further and talk theory, about the different that theory, murders. The only, okay, so before you said anything about the other murders, I was going to call complete bullshit on that theory. I mean, it, it sounds compelling, the fact that there were other murders in other areas that mm -hmm. kind of fit that thing. 
But, I mean, bloody water and uneaten food. Bodies covered, blunt axe blows, and nothing taken from the home. Oh, and they also found the kerosene I, lamps with the, the chimneys, the, like, glass part removed and the wicks turned down low that was another thing i meant to mention i would be interested to know like so these murders happened before there were some that happened before there was one that happened after but also the the preacher was a traveling preacher so are you suspecting that he was also the serial killer yes okay because why wouldn't if he's a traveling preacher he's traveling by train Okay. And he's also staying in a... There was. It's funny you say that because I did notice in w one of the things that they were talking about, which again, I don't want to go too far into this because I haven't read the books, but I did note there was another Presbyterian church connection. Okay. Well, that's it. That's the connection. It's, so you it's, think he was a visitor? No. He's, he's, the serial, he's a serial killer. He's a okay. serial killer preacher. He's traveling <laughs> train by train. He's going to Presbyterian churches or whatever. whatever or some type called. of connection. Or some type of connection. Okay. He's going to sing and he's doing the same thing. And he's also looking for notoriety. Because the fact is, is he's going back. He went back to this one. I'm wondering if he was going back to other places pretending to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. We cracked okay. the case. We won. We did this. I don't know. We, we don't know. We haven't cracked the case because we don't have evidence. We don't have evidence he was ever in those that. other locations. But what I'm saying is, is that it makes sense that these two theories of who it is could be the same person. Could be linked in some way. It could be George Reverend. I George did. Kyle I Kelly. did. Once I saw that other Presbyterian Church connection, I was like, hmm. Because being that he was a traveling preacher, like you said, he'd been invited to this Children's Day program at the Presbyterian Church. He could have very well been invited to this other Presbyterian Church. So, okay, let's shift gears and let's talk about the haunting. So the farmhouse was used as a rental home for many years before it was purchased by Darwin and Martha Lynn in 1994. Now Darwin has actually since passed away. I think he died in 2011. But the couple planned to turn the home into a historical museum. But first they had to restore the home to what it would have looked like, like back in 1912. And what normally happens with these hauntings, anytime a house undergoes restorations or renovations, that's when activity starts right. happening. It, yeah. it, it triggers, it stimulates this paranormal activity. You also see that in one of our favorite shows, Haunting of Hill House. Exactly, exactly. So people have claimed, people who've gone to visit the home have claimed to hear children giggling, disembodied screams, toys, especially balls, have been said to move on their own, kind of like Timmy from Waverly. Yeah. Um, in fact, paranormal investigators will bring toys for the children to play with in an effort to capture some of that activity on camera. In general, people just feel this sense of foreboding, this feeling of dread, overwhelming dread when they walk into the home and even when they're like that people will lay down on the beds. Now I don't know if they're I don't think they're the actual beds where the people died, but it's in the same right. location. And so people have felt that sense of dread and some have claimed that their pant 
the, the leg of their pants has been tugged or pulled on by an unseen force. Okay. And one of the most interesting things to happen in the home in recent years is that an amateur paranormal investigator was stabbed. Jesus. Or rather stabbed himself. Oh, okay. With a knife. <laughs> in the that down- took a turn. <laughs> in the downstairs bedroom. That went from that went from I got stabbed by ghosts to on. I got I stabbed myself. So it was in the room where <laughs> Lena and Ina were killed. On November 7th, 2014, Robert Stephen Larson Jr., 37, of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, was visiting the Villisca Axe Murder House with his friends. He was alone in the guest bedroom when he called for help on his two-way radio. His friends found him stabbed in the chest, and they called 911. He was taken to a local hospital and then airlifted to Creighton, Creighton University Medical Center in Omaha. Police believe the incident happened at about 12.45 a.m., said to be the time the axe murder took place, or the axe murders took place in June of 1912. Unlike the Moore family, Robert Larson, Larson, I guess is his last name, it's spelled like Laura and then Sin, Larson, recovered from his injuries. He claimed he was provoking the spirits in the home and doesn't remember stabbing himself. Well, I mean, A, don't do that. Yeah, I mean that's what these paranormal, <laughs> these paranormal investigators go in there right. and they start like, like pissing ghost off bros. ghosts. Right. Yeah. But also, so he doesn't remember stabbing himself. Right. So why? So did so what did he even stab himself? They said the the doctor said it was self inflicted. How did they determine that? I don't know. Ask the doctors. I'm mm. just reporting on what I found. Okay, so. <laughs> my my thought process. I'm not a medical professional. But, but here's fuck my, if I know. Right, but here's my <laughs> here's my thought process. Is we've talked about how you know places you know that have a very specific history of mm-hmm. death and destruction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know extreme traumatic murders. This would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a heightened sense of energy and and and, and ghostly manifestations Uh but also here's the other thing too is i think this guy who i still think is reverend george you think the murderer i think the murderer is reverend george kelly or whatever the fuck his name is okay um what if he died knowing that like he he wanted to be that like the notoriety like he that's what he wanted so like he he was traveling from place to place and he kept coming back to the places where he murdered people. Now, the only thing we know is he came back to this place, mm-hmm. right? So he comes back to this place in death, right? So he haunts this place. Yeah. And, of course, here are these paranormal investigators that come in, you know, start staying shit, and he ghostly wills somebody to stab himself in the chest. Well, so here... here okay, here's why I think you do have some good compelling information about how it could be Reverend Kelly. I mean, A, he confessed. B, like you said, he was a traveling preacher, so if there were other axe murders, and especially with the connection to the Presbyterian Church, it does make sense. He could have been a, a visitor, and, and and it wasn't like it's like it is now, so there's not going to be the internet for people to like research and find a connection. Right. In the same way that we do nowadays, yeah, right? Right. 
So you're talking about police departments having to speak to one another and find similarities and connections in order to solve something like this, these connected murders um, throughout the Midwest. Also, the interesting thing, bringing again back up about the mirrors being covered. Okay. If this is a religious man, you can look at it two ways. Was he covering the mirrors because he was ashamed of what he was doing? He felt that he should do it because God told him to, and yet he felt shame. Okay. And covered his covered the mirror so he couldn't see his. Maybe he didn't like what he saw in the mirror. Right. Also, wasn't it the belief system back then that the soul could be trapped inside of a mirror, and so they would cover the mirror? Oh shit. So if he was killing people and then he thought he'd get trapped in the house, but he's also, but in theory, if he's a ghost, maybe he wants a bitch. I don't know. No, I don't think he would want them to be trapped. He would want them to go and, and be judged by God. So do you think that he, in theory, this murder was happening because he was trying to send them to heaven? To or, hell. I Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, so looking back at that, let's see, it was Ezekiel... Hold on. Ezekiel 9.6. Yeah. Utterly slay. Old and young men, maidens and sh little children and women, do not let, do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. Now, I need to look. I, I'm not a biblical scholar by any means. I don't know what the... Uh, the only thing I could think about is the mark, the mark of Cain. I don't know. That's an odd take, though. But also, it makes sense. Is he slaying know. them because they're innocent and they, or is he slaying them because they're just, both are sinful? I just, I, I'm more of the psychological base and I think that I'm covering the mirrors up because I, I can't take looking at myself because I've murdered an entire fucking family. Mm -hmm. Because I think he, I don't think he covered the mirrors until after he did it. I don't think that was something he oh, did Oh, you don't think it was him. during? Mm-mm. I think he murdered them. And then he couldn't look at himself And he couldn't look after. at himself. Okay. Because uh, I'm wondering how much time he spent in the house before he left. Do you think he could have smoked those cigarettes in the attic after he committed the murder? That's what I'm wondering. If he was invited in. Right. Because who, who would go to the attic? I think he was invited in. I, I still think that. That's my theory. I think he was invited in. I think he drugged him. I think he killed him. He puts the blankets on the mirror because he can't handle it. He smokes a cigarette to kind of like chill out and then he bounces and then he leaves the next day and he's on a train he talks about the murders because i mean fuck if they're if you're going to murder somebody like that you're going to talk about it because you need to process that because again also i think he wants the notoriety because mm -hmm. he comes back to the scene pretending to be a scotland yard. i'm going back to that like numerous times but still mm -hmm. he comes back there pretending to be a scotland yard guy mm -hmm. come on <laughs> Okay. Well, he's I my mean, guy. He, he's the guy I think did this. Okay. Well, maybe you should do some more research and see whatever happened to him after this case, because I didn't do probably that. Probably dead now. Well, of course <laughs> he's dead, but I mean, what? What? How did he live the rest of his life? Right. And did he ever visit any of these other locations? Right. So, if you feel brave enough, this is to the audience or you, babe, if you. Oh. If you feel brave enough, you can take a tour of the Villisca Axe murder house you can take a day tour or you can stay overnight in the home 
Prices start at $428 for groups of one to six. To learn more, you can visit www.villiscaiowa.com. And I, so, what do you think? Do you want to? No. You don't want to no, go I, say the mic? A, I don't want to go there because somebody got stabbed, <laughs> either by himself or by a fucking ghost. So, okay. I like my life. I don't want to die. So, um, number two, that is hella like expensive for a night <laughs> like just a, well, a murder house have, yeah so 420 i think you have the house to yourself and you can do investigations for 400 yeah and then somebody got stabbed i'm paying 428 dollars to get stabbed <laughs> sorry all right well listeners have you ever visited the Velisca axe murder house if so we'd love to hear about your experience Email us at contactspiritedspirits at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, which is at Spirited Spirits, and on Instagram at Spirited underscore Spirits underscore podcast. Yeah, and we hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Um, next week, I'll be taking, or I'll be talking about another haunted home, uh, but perhaps haunted in a very different way. Mm. So, we hope that you'll join us next week while we talk about spirits, while we're sipping on spirits. Bye.